My name is David McHale. I'm one of our pastors here. I'm going to be reading scripture for us this morning uh, out of the Gospel of John. So uh, it is on page 853 in the Pew Bible. You want to turn there. And it's just two verses. This comes toward the end of the Gospel of John. And John says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. So I mentioned last week, if you were here, that we're going to begin our new sermon series in the Gospel of John. We're not going to finish this summer, but we hope to just make it through chapter 4, which doesn't feel very productive, but they're very full chapters. And the other thing I'll mention that this summer we're going to have more children in the worship service, not necessarily maybe in this one, but I know especially in second. We have suspended um, children's Sunday school for youth and junior high and elementary um, for a couple reasons. One, to give our teachers a break, but two, to, we think it's good for kids to experience the worship service even just for a summer. And so if they're in here, um, they can, feel free. If you, we're so glad that you're here. You can um, draw pictures during the sermon. If you, I'm going to be preaching about Jesus' miracles. If, if any adults want to draw any pictures during the sermon, you can come show me those as well. If that helps you focus, um, I, would, I would love to see them. Let's, let's pray as we turn our attention to God's word. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. I, so, so quickly, I think we can just, as a Christian, take it for granted that we have a book that has your words in it. What a precious thing. Lord, may we, this morning, as we read more of the scripture in the sermon than perhaps normal, I pray that we would receive that as a precious thing, as an invitation to life that it really is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When an engaged couple comes up to me and says, hey, would you officiate our wedding? One of the first things we talk about is, okay, what, what will premarital counseling look like? And in that first session, um, we usually just get to know each other. But, but when we begin premarital counseling proper, so to speak, on that very first session, I usually say, hey, this is, this is going to be the most boring session. Now, I usually don't think it is the most boring, and I don't actually think it is boring, but I say it's boring because in the first session, we're just going to read a ton of Bible. Like, that, that's what we do during the first session. We don't talk about budgeting or how to work through conflict or children or roles and responsibility or intimacy. All of that comes later. On the first night, we simply read and discuss all the verses in the Bible about men and women and marriage and divorce and remarriage. Well, maybe not all of them. <laughs> There's a lot of those, but we read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and sometimes Luke 16, 18, usually 1 Corinthians 7, and we talk about God's one flesh purpose for marriage. We talk about the ways that adultery and desertion um, can happen and, and what that means for them, and I tell the couple that what they need to see is what they're getting into, right? M marriage, I'll tell the couple, is more intense than dating or courting or engagement. 
but it's not merely more intense. Like marriage is something more than something more than just something more intense. And couples need to know that. They're in a new relationship altogether. So, so why am I talking about that? This morning, we come to the beginning of our sermon series through the Gospel of John. And we're starting our introduction to the book from the very end of the book. There's a reason for that. Those verses at the end of the Gospel of John, John gives his purpose for writing what he wrote. Namely, that in believing in Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, we would have life in his name. That's that's what John says. Everything he wrote, everything he didn't write, so to speak, was written so that we would see that Jesus is our source of life. And if that's true then we need to get familiar with what he wrote. So I just, I just want to say up front in this sermon, more than a typical week, sort of like that first session of premarital counseling, I just want to read lots and lots of scripture to become acquainted, or maybe we would say reacquainted with who Jesus is. That's a good thing for us. As Christians, we need to be continually reminded who Jesus says he is himself. That's just what some guy says or what some book says or what we read over here on the internet. Who, who is Jesus? Who is this one from whom we draw our namesake as Christians? The Gospel of John was written by a man who spent lots of time with Jesus. Likely the book was the last written of the four Gospels. And so what we have in the Gospel of John are the mature reflections of a man who spent years with Jesus while Jesus was on earth, but then probably spent another 50 years following Jesus as a Christian and thinking about the words he wanted to write to us. Now that's often thought of as like, oh, why didn't he write it sooner? Well, other people were writing things. We have Galatians, which is maybe 15 years after the resurrection. But John spent 50 years thinking about the words he wanted to share with us. Some refer to the Gospel of John as, quote, the book of signs. They do this because of the repeated emphasis on this language and the stories about signs that teach us who Jesus is. Another name for signs might be miracles. John tends to use the word signs. In the Gospel of John, there are seven signs. And just, just settle in here now, as I, with all that introduction, just settle in here as I read a whole bunch of them. But as I read them, I want to keep bringing us back to this one question, which is, what did John, indeed Jesus, what, what did John and Jesus want us to do with each sign? So if you have a Bible, you can open it to John chapter 2. Um, if you're going to use one of these pew Bibles, I'm going to begin on page 834. I won't read all of all of them, but this first one, I'll read all of the verses. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The first sign. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I think think she knows, I think both of them knew what was going on here. Verse six, now there were six stone water jars there 
for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. You see in verse 11 that John flags for readers this idea of signs. He says, quote, This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Then John adds, And the disciples believed in him. So, as I promised, I'll ask the question, What do you think John, indeed Jesus, wants us to do with this first sign? And we're going to have a whole sermon on it in a couple of weeks. I think Pastor Ben's going to be preaching that one. But for now, we'll just keep going. Flip over with me to chapter 4. Chapter 4, going to begin in verse 46. This story involves a healing. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, in other words, gotten closer, so he's gone way up north, close to him, he went to him and asked him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, just quick, quick insertion here. Like, if, if you've been around people who have a loved one at the point of death, you, you know how agonizing it is. Like, I'm here, but if I leave, then what's going to happen? Like, I... You, you, you understand the tension here of like, if I, if I go, like I have to be there, but if I go away, then, but if I don't go away, then he's not going to get healed. So that's the predicament of this father. Verse 49, excuse me, verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Again, in the last verse of the passage, um, 54, John goes ahead and numbers the sign. There was the first, and now this is the second. After this sign, John's going to stop numbering them. He just kind of expects us as readers, okay, you picking up what I'm doing here? And so he's going to continue on. But I'll just ask the question, what do you think Jesus wants us to do with this sign? We'll keep going. Chapter 5, chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. The third sign comes in chapter 9. So beginning verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. 
In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, there's a whole context going on there that will need a sermon when we're actually in that passage. Verse 8, But Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. <laughs> the healing of a leg that hadn't been able to walk in 37 years would not be like the causing of someone who had recently stopped walking to begin walking. All the muscles would have been atrophied. What are we supposed to do with this sign? What does John want us to do as we hear and believe and see this sign? We'll keep going. The fourth and fifth signs occur together in chapter 6. Jesus feeds 5,000 people and then he walks on water. And so I'll just read these two together. So chapter 6, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. It's a sea that has two names. Verse 2, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, not Philip said to Jesus, but Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that all these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but, but, but what are they for so many? I'll skip down to verse 14. You know what happens. They, they, they feed all the people. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he'd done, they said, this is indeed the prophet. Now, not, not a prophet, the prophet. There's a whole sermon there. It has to do with Moses speaking of, not a prophet, but the prophet who's going to come into the world. Verse 15. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Verse 16, when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea. He got into a boat and started across, uh, got into a boat and started across the Sea of Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea was becoming rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed out three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat. And they were frightened. And he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately. The boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, let your eyes go down to verse 25. When they, the crowd, their other crowd follows him to the other side of the lake. When they, the crowd, found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the bread that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now, I love this story, and one of the things I love about it is the way it begins. Did you notice it begins with a question? Hey, Philip, Jesus says. Like, 
all these people here, and I'm, they look kind of hungry, and I want to feed them. What are we going to feed them with? Like, does it intrigue you that Jesus begins the story with a question? You think he asks that question because there's information he doesn't have? I don't. Verse 6, six says explicitly, Jesus said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. He's not asking to get information. What are we supposed to do with this sign? Seems that Jesus is disappointed with those who just stop at the sign, those who want nothing more than the sign. Jesus is disappointed in those who want nothing more than a bread machine. The sixth sign is the healing of a man born blind. In a way, this takes up all of chapter 9. So I'm not going to read all of chapter 9, but I am going to read the first seven verses. So chapter 9, first seven verses. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Okay? Walking by, blind guy. Mark verse 2. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, just think of that. Like, I'm just walking around, like, look at Bechtel, like, why has Bechtel got glasses? <laughs> like, you're like, is it his fault or someone else? Like, it feels a little insulting, right? Sorry. I thought you'd forgive me. <laughs> um, that's what the disciples are doing here. And Jesus answers, it's not that this man was sinned or his parents. I mean, there's sin in the world, Jesus would say, of course, and there's effects of that. But, but in particular, one-to-one, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with mud and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. I'm not going to do that to you, Ben. I'm not going spit to spit, spit the ground and you can really rub this in your eyes. Um, but that's what Jesus did. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and, and came back seeing. And when this happens, all sorts of controversy breaks out. Like all the media outlets are covering it. They don't know what to do with it. They can't find the guy. They find the guy and it's this crazy story. The religious leaders hate Jesus for it. It's the sixth sign. Now we come to the seventh sign, chapter 11. Another sign that really, in a way, is one story across an entire chapter. The seventh sign is the raising from the dead of a man named Lazarus, who is a friend of Jesus. And Jesus goes to visit him. And famously, John eleven thirty three, Jesus wept. At his tomb, he's overcome with grief. And while he's weeping, some of them, they go to him and just mock his ability to heal. Like, he saved others. Why didn't he save his friend? Maybe he can't. That's where we pick up in verse 38. Jesus, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. That's how I think he said it. There's a whole bunch of reasons why. He was angry. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but on account of the people 
But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, (laughs) if you're a kid in the audience, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And it says, you know, if if you're sitting with an adult, look, have him point there at verse 44 where it says, his hands and feet were bound with linen strips. Like, like he just had, like, he had to, like, hobble out. I think it's funny. Anyway, be a good picture to draw if you're drawing pictures of the sermon. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come out with Mary... And had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I don't think that's to evangelize, but tattletale. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. In our sermon series on the Gospel of John, I have no idea when we're going to get to chapter 11. I'll figure that out at some point. (laughs) But I can't wait. The last time I preached this passage was 18 years ago. (laughs) I was a very rookie preacher at the time, but I'm looking forward to preaching it again. But there we have it. Seven signs. Or do we? Or do we have all seven? There's some disagreement about how to number the signs. John, as I said, stops numbering them for us. Some think we should... Um, see both the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water because of their proximity and kind of connectedness as one sign. So if you do that, you compress those two into one, then you have one, quote, sign left over. There's seven, kind of a biblical number. I think that might be a good way to look at it because the last and climactic sign in the book is not the raising of Lazarus, but the raising of Jesus from the dead. Listen to what John says, or Jesus says in John 10, 18. This is before the resurrection, but it's helpful. It's how Jesus thought about of his own coming resurrection. John 10, 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to raise it up again. <laughs> Who talks like that? Now back to our question. If Jesus does signs, what are we to do with these signs? The long introduction, we're on page 8, only 9 of them. And David read the scripture passage. Let's come back to it with me. It's at the end of the book. John 20, verse 30 and 31. Our text for this morning. John 30, excuse me, 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs. In the presence of his, the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I'll answer the question. John wants us to see these signs of Jesus. But John doesn't want us to stop at the signs. John doesn't want us to stop at the signs because that's, we, that's what we do with signs. We don't stop at them. We keep going to where they point. Signs point to something else. Think of a sign that would point to you know, the beach, Ocean City, up ahead, 
Half our church there this week. No, I don't know. Memorial Day weekend. Ocean City, right? There's a sign. No one sees the sign. It's like, okay, let's pull over the car. Let's just play in the median right here. <laughs> like, like you, keep, you, you look at the sign, and you keep going to where the sign points. John doesn't want us to pull the car over and stop at signs, at the miracles. Instead, he wants us to keep traveling, to keep seeing what the signs point to until we believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And when we do, we have life in his name. John wants us to find our true life, not in the stuff of this world, not even the gifts that God gives us, but he wants us to find life in God himself. That, that's what we're given in the Gospel of John, in Jesus, in the Gospel. So often we try to find life apart from God. We try to find it, life in everything that in the end, by itself, will only bring death. But it's Jesus who brings life, and as Tony said earlier, life to the full. A life that begins now and goes on forever. That, that is good news. Speaking of good news as we close, I, I won't necessarily ask the question if you feel the need for the life that Jesus brings now, but I, I'll just say I do. I do. I look out at all the death in the world and see the need for Jesus. And life in his name. There were shootings in a grocery store in Buffalo. There were shootings in an elementary school. An elementary school. In Texas. And in the wake of the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade, all sorts of insanity broke out. There's a war in Ukraine. Death is everywhere. And consider the brokenness in the church. Now, this may not have hit your radar in the way that some of those other news stories hit your radar, but many of us pastors who pay attention to these sorts of things will have been shocked about the report that was published last week on the largest Protestant denomination in the world. The report outlines hundreds of cases of sexual abuse among church leaders and the denomination's attempts at the highest levels to cover it up. And then here in our own church, so many things to be thankful for. So many things. But I felt the brokenness here in several ways as well. I, I, I stood right here yesterday to preside over the memorial service for Shelby Stauffer, longtime member and coworker. I mentioned a few weeks ago in the sermon about Shelby. Shelby's faith and joy in Jesus and how that was contagious. You go to visit her and you're just like, how is this even happening? Because of her illness, she could only communicate by writing on a whiteboard at the end. And then even in the last few days, that stopped. Just for context, I'll tell you, in the last six months, I've led and officiated more funerals than I'd have the previous six years. I guess at the end, I would just say, this is why we need John's gospel. 
God inspired John to write this good news story of Jesus. When he did that, it was because John was not unaware of the death in our world. But it is this world, the broken world, the, God, the world that God so loved and gave his son. And in giving us his son, he's offering you life in his name, abundant life, a kind of life that is truly life. Everything John wrote, everything John, in a way, left out, just not because, as he says at the end of the book, if I, if I compiled everything, there's not enough books in the world, he says. I had to leave some things out because it's all so good, but the things I included and the things I left out are there so that we would be able to see as clearly as possible that God is not offering us just bread or just healing or some other miracle, but in Jesus Christ, God is offering us himself. And that is the best news in the world. Let's pray. Invite the worship team to close us in song. Heavenly Father, Thank you this morning that if our life is hard right now, we don't have to pretend. The Gospel of John doesn't force us to pretend that everything's happy and bubbly. But it, it comes to us, it comes to me as I am, needy. And pours in grace and pours in joy and pours in life and light to the point of overflowing. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories that are not mere stories, but they are life itself. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray.